Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, A Baby Tramp by Ambrose Bierce, first published in The Wave, August 29th, 1891. I I think I might have told you about this magazine before. It was a San Francisco publication. Maybe maybe we did a, sh- a show on one of the stories I found in there um, that was published as a, a supplement to the guests of a ma- uh, of a hotel. So it was a, like a uh, not quite a vanity thing because it was it was like a, a perk of staying at that hotel. I, I don't know if it was more widely available. I assume it was. But there was always an ad uh, for the hotel, I think, on the back cover. And uh, it was a local um, newspaper, uh, local magazine um, highlighting details about San Francisco and and that sort of thing. But um, also has a lot of great fiction by a lot of great writers, including Ambrose Bierce. I, I think I pulled about 10 stories of his out of this. And... Um, I'd never heard of a baby tramp, but I love the title. And uh, I went and read it, and then I thought some thoughts about it, and then I went and looked online. And uh, basically, most people don't like this story. They, they, I don't like rating systems, but it has, I think, a consistent rating, really low, of 2.5 out of 5 or something like that. And uh like I said, I don't like rating systems, but I think it's indicative, especially when many people do it over and over again. Um, when a great writer like Ambrose Bierce puts out a very interesting story and it gets a low rating, I think it's because people aren't getting something. And I know that that's true for myself because I just like this story, but I couldn't articulate why until I read it and thought about it. And then I, I waited a while and then I read it again. And uh, then in the shower this morning thinking about it again, I was like, I think I, I'm getting stuff here. Like I can explain why it's a much better story than people are ranking it. Um, but we haven't talked about it previously other than, you know, we agreed to do it. So what is your take on it? I, I think it is a surprising story mm-hmm. with, interesting depths to it and one of the things that i find interesting about its depths is that in most of it um which is to say rough rule of thumb from the second paragraph through the penultimate paragraph it's a short story Mm -hmm. uh, but excluding the opening and ending paragraphs or i should say they're not distinctly different from the middle, but in the beginning and the end, the story has a kind of pathos. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a negative sense at all. There is a, a depth of a fellow feeling and um, humanity um, that uh, strikes me as expressing a sadness about the human condition. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I might have expected more from the the working class sensibilities of Jack London, mm. speaking of San Francisco publication, than of Ambrose Bierce. Mm-hmm. But in the middle, 
the, the vast middle of it, much of the the tone is satiric, not as mm-hmm. biting as Beers often is in the Devil's Dictionary, for example, but satiric. Mm-hmm. And so I can see that moving from one, from that sort of pathetic beginning into the mildly satiric, but nonetheless, every target, I think, gets hit right on. Oh, yeah. And then coming out again to the pathetic, um, I think it could strike a lot of people as a story that that really doesn't hang together tonally. Mm-hmm. But I think, in fact, that it hangs together beautifully tonally because that movement from the pathetic through the satiric back to the pathetic seems to me to suggest Beers offering the notion that satire is a refuge. Yes, yes, exactly. That, that's exactly what I was thinking is, is this is a defense mechanism. And and uh, he's he fe- his his feels are very injurable, and he I think is ill. I was thinking about why it was so low, lowly rated and reading the reviews, and I was thinking like I think they're not getting it because one of the one of the things that this story is describable as is as a ghost story. Um, and it is technically, I guess, a ghost story, but I, that's not how I would classify it as a sort of what it's mostly doing, but maybe before we get deep down into what it actually is and how he did it, um, you would like to tell sort of how the plot works. Sure. The story opens, and I think at some point we should read the opening paragraph. Mm-hmm. The story opens with a portrait of little Joe, J-O, um, a vagabond, uh, a child vagabond, maybe, in fact, a baby tramp, mm-hmm. uh, who is in a town called Blackburg. Um, then we find out about this town, Blackburg, what kind of a a rural town dominated by a particular family. Um, we find out about the family, and in the course of the discussion of the town and the family and so on, we get uh, lots of Beersian satire, and it's it, it hits right on in terms of social class and money and, and pretension of civilization and expertise and so on. The main character, it turns out, is the offspring of a woman named Hetty Parlow, who had married into the uh, the major? Who, who excuse me was by maiden name one of the Brownons, the uh, the leading town family in the town. Uh, she'd gone away, come back. We learn about her, but the town is attacked by a plague, an actual disease that kills half the population, drives many of the rest away. When people start coming back, they still become. Um, subject to uh, disaster. And so at the age of one, back in Blackburg, um, little Joseph is orphaned. And then we follow what happens to him. Um, Some relatives, uh, distant relatives, take him up and bring him someplace else, Winnemucca, Nevada. We never know which city Blackburg is in, Um, in which state, into Winnemucca, Nevada. Something happens and he gets in transit. He gets attacked uh, and stolen by Indians. Somebody else sells him. Uh, But son of a gun, through all of these bizarre peregrinations, uh, 
enough to justify satire because mm-hmm. life can't be that crazy, can it? Um, he finally winds up alone, little boy, alone, filthy, ragged clothing, standing in the rain, back in Blackburg. And there he tries to find shelter and is driven off by a dog. People don't care for him. And he heads out down the road, which is the Greenton Road, as if he were on his way from his birth in the Blackburg Mm -hmm. to finally getting to greener pastures. But to get to Greenton, you have to pass by by the south side of the cemetery, which we've already encountered before, when a bunch of revelers out think they see the ghost of Hetty Parlow, the woman who died in disease, uh, who was the mother of this child, and they think that she has in fact been calling out, perhaps even to him. Uh, Of course, ghosts aren't real. But, in fact, little Joe, we find out at the end, never makes it to Greenton, He um, stumbles into the cemetery and he is ultimately found in a beatific position on top of the grave of the woman he would have no way of knowing was his mother. So the world seems to arrange coincidences and it seems to think there's something crucial about the mother-son bond. But what that meaning is depends, I think, on what we take to be the last paragraph, which I could read, but I think we should read the first paragraph first. But why don't I stop here and see if you want to flesh this out a little bit before we dig into the details of the Mm -hmm, story. mm -hmm. Yeah, he has a um, quite a a journey from Blackburg out into the rest of the United States and then back home. And we have it documented somehow by the narrator. Um, he talks to us as if we know the town of Greenton and Blackburg and the neighbor, the neighboring area, which we we can infer is somewhere in the east because later on in the story um, we're told he's out in Nevada. And uh, m- uh, meanwhile, at the very same moment, uh, that is Joe's out in the Nevada, the very same moment his mother is appearing on the other side of the continent in the graveyard of uh, Blackburg. Um, so uh, he's an Easterner who heads west. Um, and yeah, the, the way Bierce tells the story, um, it's a comedy piece for the majority of it. Um, and, and I was thinking, oh, it's just standard Bierce being funny. Um, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting to understand him a little better, but, um, the way he pushes away uh, responsibility for everything that happens, um, that is, Bierce pushes away responsibility for everything that happens, makes me think that he's doing something very interesting here. Um, like, um, let's start with that opening line and the opening paragraph, I guess. If you had seen Little Joe standing on the street corner in the rain, you would have hardly, ad- you would hardly have admired him. Um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to admire Little Joe. I don't know who Little Joe is, but he's going to tell us a story about Little Joe. Um, and we know the title of the story is A Baby Tramp. Well, tramps are not admirable to begin with, right? But a baby tramp? That's just cute, 
right? <laughs> it reminds me of those cartoons where they have a baby gangster, right? He's he's in, a, in his diaper and he's wearing his bonnet and he's got a big cigar and a pistol and he's angry. <laughs> he wants to rob, rob banks. It's just a comedy piece. But as we transition, um, we find out how little Joe ended up like that, why he looks like he's being rained upon by sticky black rain. Um, and we find out how how he dies and all that. Uh, every time the satire comes into the story, what I notice is it, 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 there's no one responsible for it. And I, I think this is like Beer saying, there's no God. Um, and the people on Earth, eh, they're pretty... They're pretty not caring about these sort of things. Tramp's regular or Tramp's baby doesn't really matter because every statistic has a story behind it. Every every death due to exposure has a story behind it. Here's one. So that's my initial thought on it. And then I noticed, I want to point this out to you very interestingly, the, the colors that show up, as far as I can tell, Blackburg is not a real town. There's a Blacksburg somewhere else in, in the States, um, but that's Virginia. not it. Yeah, Virginia. Um, there's, uh, I'm sure there's a Greenton somewhere. Um, but I also noticed in a later publication of um, a baby tramp in one of his collections, um, Bierce's collections, that one word was changed, and uh, I think that might be to emphasize something that he was doing. And that's um, uh, when he goes to from Cleveland to a town called Dryville, and it says, he must have traveled by rail somehow. For three days later, he was in the town of Dryville, which, as you know, is a long way from Blackburg. Again, the narrator addressing me, I don't know about Dryville. I don't know about Blackburg. I don't think anybody in the audience knows about it, right? At the audience of 1891. So what, what's he doing there? Well, uh, in the later publication, that Dryville name is changed. It's to Whiteville. And that really clued me into what he's doing with the colors. So the town is named Blackburg. You pointed out that uh, the way past the graveyard is to a road, a place called Creenton. And Berg and Tun are both suffixes meaning town, right? And then Ville uh, is one. And by changing it to Whiteville, he's just making it all the more obvious, right? That there's a lot of color going on. In fact, the family name is Brownon. Right, mm-hmm. so what's he doing with it? What is he doing with this? Uh, well, he's making a colorful story, right? Um, that doesn't really apply to any particular person. This is a true story, exactly, and I, I think we get the sense that it's not supposed to be true. What with the frogs falling from the sky and the the blood red snow falling from the from the sky and then melting into blood red water, or maybe it isn't water, right? And <laughs> Nothing good is going to come of it, we're told. Well, um, yeah, and then there's a disease that hits the town. What's going on, Eric? This is a very interesting phenomenon. I think that um, the the color symbolism is is real. I think that there is a natural, uh, certainly among uh, light-skinned people, a natural association of um, white, with uh, purity 
and um, and black with death. I say among white-skinned people because in West Africa, for example, white is the color of death. It mm-hmm. represents the, the skeleton that's ultimately revealed after long burial. But uh, for people like Bierce, uh, culturally and genetically, um, white is, is purity and black is death. Uh, black is also being a black, meaning you've got the money, and the Brownons, the mm-hmm. leading family, have more money than anybody else. Uh, as far as Dryville becoming Whiteville, I think it's clear that there is an enormous distinction being made, contrast, between Dryville and Black Blackburg. Mm-hmm. That's clear even without the name change to Whiteville. I think the reason that Bierce wrote it as Dryville to begin with is because he is characterizing Blackton from the first paragraph on as the place of rain. Mm-hmm. And rain, I, I think it's it's worth our while thinking about that whole paragraph and its literary allusions. Um, so if I may, although you've read the first line of it, I'd like to go back to it. And okay. that I hope we'll get to that mm-hmm. question you ask about the meaning of the, the symbolism. If you had seen little Joe standing at the street corner in the rain, you would hardly have admired him. Now, mirabile means uh, look at this miracle. The word miracle and admire come from the same root um, in Latin. If you had seen little Joe standing at the street corner in the rain, you would hardly have admired him. It was apparently an ordinary autumn rainstorm, but the water which fell upon Joe who was hardly old enough to be either just or unjust, and so perhaps did not come under the law of impartial distribution. And I want to talk about that before mm-hmm. I finish the sentence. This is clearly a reference to Shakespeare, to Portia's speech in The Merchant of Venice, when she says that the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth from the it droppeth like the gentle rain from heaven. It is twice blessed. It blesseth those he that giveth and he that receiveth. That is to say, and she goes on, that the rain drops on both the just and the unjust alike. Mm-hmm. She uses this as a an argument that even if her father, we don't know she's, I mean, the, the, the people in the court don't know that Portia is in fact Portia, she's disguised as a male lawyer, defending her father, um, even if legally Shylock has a right to claim his pound of flesh, um, he should not be able to, because the courts should have mercy like God has mercy. Things descend from heaven. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth like the gentle rain from heaven. On the just and the unjust alike— so that's what's being referenced here, is that that very, very famous speech from Shakespeare, which is a winning argument in the court, in the play, whether or not we think that uh, Shylock is properly treated as another matter. But it's a winning argument here. And what this is, says is that little Joe may be so young that it's not even a question of whether he is among the just or the unjust. In other words, he's he's still innocent. Mm-hmm. He right. He he is being baptized by the rain. Right. This should be he should be pure. Um, so when we see this rain, 
there's all kinds of reference to what is fair in the world and whether or not God presides over it. And one would like to believe that a child who could not yet have done enough to be thought of as just or unjust would by default be thought of as good, be, by default be thought of as something that the world would support. But that's not what happens. So going back to that long second sentence of the paragraph, it was apparently an ordinary autumn, meaning moving toward the winter and cold and death, rainstorm, but the water which fell upon Joe, who was hardly old enough to be either just or unjust, and so perhaps did not come under the law of impartial distribution, appeared to have some property peculiar to itself. That is, the rain appeared to have that quality. One would have said it was dark and adhesive, sticky, which you mentioned, Jesse. Mm -hmm. But that could hardly be so, even in Blackburg, where certainly things did occur that were a good deal out of the common. For example, 10 or 12 years before, a shower of small frogs had fallen, as it is veritably attested by a contemporaneous chronicle, the record concluding with a somewhat obscure statement to the effect that the chroniclers considered it good growing weather for Frenchmen. <laughs> okay, now, that last phrase, good growing weather for Frenchmen, moves us to sat into the Syriac tone yep. because, you know, Frenchmen are, eat frogs' legs and they're called, the French are, uh, in a pejorative terms, called frogs. Mm -hmm. So this is good growing weather for Frenchmen. But, in fact, there have been reigns of small frogs in the history of the world. They are not, in fact, un unknown, but they are out of the common. And this usually happened when a water spout picks up a bunch of stuff from a nearby pond and drops it over a town. Mm -hmm. And this particular phenomenon of things being picked up and dropped by rain is mentioned in the Bible. And Indeed. in fact, these are the plagues that, that God visits upon the Egyptians in order to help turn their mind to allow the Hebrews to leave their slavery. So these showers of frogs not only are uncommon, but they too could be a sign of God's intervention in the world. That's right. But having explained this, that little Joe should be innocent, that little Joe fits into a long cultural tradition, that includes Shakespeare and the Bible and the weather. You know, having explained all of that, the story then in that last line, considered good growing weather for Frenchmen, moves into a satiric tone. Mm -hmm. And then we go on. So you ask, what does this say about God? Um, if it's okay with you, I'll look at the last paragraph, and mm -hmm. I think it's the answer. So... Joe is trying to get to Greenton. He doesn't know that, of course. He's just this little boy. And he is either on a small tramp uh, or he is himself a small tramp. Um, but, you know, that is to say, I'm reading the last line of the penultimate paragraph. The road leads to Greenton for those who succeed in passing the Oak Hill Cemetery. Quite a number every year do not. As they die, mm -hmm. get buried there. Joe did not. They found him out there the next morning, very wet, very cold, but no longer hungry. Ouch. No. Ouch. Exactly. The irony is still there, but the satire is gone. And I would point out, going back to what the proximal motivation for your inquiry about God, if Beers is thinking of Blackton 
as the place where we get these black rains or what appear to be black rains when they drain off the filthy face of someone like Joe who's been mistreated by the world. Then the opposite of Blackton is Dryville. But it may be that Beers found out that not enough people mm-hmm. got Mm-hmm. The connection between black and rain, and so he just changed Dryville to Whiteville, mm-hmm. because black and white are clearly contrastive. Yep. But I think dry and, and rain was what he was going for with Blackton. And uh, uh, I, I think the brown is somewhere in between, right? Uh, the brown brownens. Um, exactly. So and you'll notice that the Brownen family typically goes away for a while, and right. then most comes back. That's right. Um, and then there's always a greener place to go to in Greenton, right? In fact, that's where the kids coming back from the May Day celebrations hop exactly. up on coffee and and uh, what was that? yeah, something like that. Um, I uh, there was a couple of points where I was like, it's really interesting the way there's no one responsible for this for this babe. In fact, um, we know that this babe uh, Joe is on his way home because of his tiny vocabulary. At one point, he's arrested, um, and that was pretty funny uh, while it was happening. But I'm thinking, uh, you know, this is Bierce's way of deflecting what's actually happening. But um, I want to read that uh, little section. This is uh, on the second column, about in the middle. Um, being unable to give any account of himself, he was arrested as a vagrant and sentenced to imprisonment in the infant's sheltering home where he was washed. <laughs> and right. then um, he, just before that, he, he answered to the policeman, what are you doing? Where are you, where are you going, little toddler? And he says, I doing home, right? He, he somehow finds his way home um, to his mother's arms who, who had called out on that night, right? Um, what the kids well, thought was that's the what evening, uh, that's the what evening star, aiming, right? That's what he's aiming for. He doesn't actually get to her arms. R- well, as close as he can get, right? Well, I think that's that's part of what makes. In fact, he's hugging himself, right? Yes. At the uh, in the last, but yes. um, that 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 isn't the first time where you know the institution sort of break down and fail him. The the first time that I really noticed it, and the line that really gets me is um, it's uh, about four or five paragraphs down on the first column, and it's the end of that paragraph. It reads like this: "Then they died of mysterious disorder." That's the the family and the and all the Brownins, in fact, already mentioned. And at the age of one whole year, Joseph set up as an orphan. Ha, 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 right? Ha, ha, ha. He's set up as an orphan. It's like, you know, I moved to a new town out west, and I'm going to set up as a as a lawyer or a set up as a, a bookseller or a set up, right? Nobody right. sets up as an orphan. <laughs> what happens is something else happens that makes you an orphan, right? So the pushing away of responsibility, um, and it's very carefully balanced, I think, to show that it isn't, humans who do this to him right you're yeah, sure people sell him people adopt him people uh take care of him and wash him right but it isn't humans that destroyed this little boy and killed him and in fact i don't think you can say god did this to him either in fact maybe those those uh, three plagues that hit the town are warnings of what's to come rather than the cause 
and yet, um, I think it's like, it's just a, what I think Bierce is always trying to do. There was a contemporary of Bierce's who, who, um, is the name Ingersoll, who's almost completely forgotten now, but he was, he's fairly popular. He was a, an atheist in a time when being an atheist was, uh, not, not popular. Um, and he was very um, strident about it, and he was well-liked by the people who liked him because he was articulate. Um, I think Bierce is doing the same thing. He's basically saying, look, there is no God. Look at this funny story of all this poor kid dying out in the, uh, in the cemetery because, you know, the dogs are barking at him, and that, that tells you that the people inside are mean. Um, I don't think he's he's blaming anybody. I think he's just pointing to the fact that, yeah, there there is no good or bad here. Um, there's just pain and suffering, and that's how it is. And I don't think that that's a very easy to tell story. I think that that's why we get it like this. But making making the statistics of how many children died of exposure. Um, uh, just a list of n- numbers added up into a column and giving you a total number doesn't give you the sense of reading a particular story of a mighty house that's fallen and its last member dying of exposure because just circumstances. I think I think you are you are quite right. I think that um, although I'm sympathetic when none of the humans help little Joe. In a way, what he suffers from, as do all of his dead relatives, as do all of the people in the cemetery, they suffer from the human, not from humans, but from the human condition. Yes. And that opening, which reminds us of mercy, reminds us of order, reminds us of God, reminds us of the Bible, reminds us of miracles, reminds us that we would like to believe that the human condition is better than, in fact, it is. So mm-hmm. after reminding us of what it should be, we get this long satire. Well, not long. It's a short story. We get this satire that takes us through the entire tramp, the, the, the movement from one place and condition to another that Joe undergoes. And then we get to the very end. And they found him out there the next morning, very wet, very cold, but no longer hungry. What a horrible way to say oh, he can't feel it. so brutal. He just tells us, but hiding the truth all the time throughout the story, by you know making little jokes about this and that, and then he he shows us the truth by telling us that, oh, it's so painful. But it, but it, it is painful. It's a great last paragraph. I, I'd like to read the whole of it because it brings us Please back do. to God and his and his his role in whether or not the human condition can be relieved. He had apparently entered the cemetery gate, hoping perhaps that it led to a house where he, there was no dog that is to keep him off and gone blundering about in the darkness, falling over many a grave, no doubt until he had tired of it all and given up the little body lay upon one side with one soiled cheek upon one soiled hand, the other hand tucked away among the rags that is that he was wearing to make it warm. The other cheek washed clean and white at last only having died. Can one come clean in this world as for a kiss from one of God's great angels? As if, but in fact, not really. Right. It was observed, though nothing was thought of it at the time, 
the body being as yet unidentified, that the little fellow was lying upon the grave of Hetty Parlow, that is to say his actual mother, which, however, had not opened to receive him, as even his mother didn't take him into her arms. That is a circumstance which, without actual irreverence, one may wish had been ordered otherwise. Yep. So at that end, that word irreverence, what what Bierce is saying is, and this I think fully supports your notion, Jesse, that there's no responsibility. God isn't there even to let Joe join his mother in death. Yep. This is a satiric funny story between the opening and closing paragraphs, but read within those bookends, this is a terrible story. And I can see why people don't say, boy, I like it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. I I will also point out that her name, Hetty Parlow, it's kind of funny. I was thinking if you switch the first two letters of each part of her name, it it, it, it changes things. Petty Harlow uh, or Petty Harlot, right? Um, Yes. It, it, the thing is, is I don't think there's any judgment by Bierce on uh, women picking up men in foreign cities, bringing them home, uh, even though they are scapegraces. I think um, he's just having fun with the fact that if you don't laugh about these things, you're going to be crying about these things. And he kept on doing it. He kept He kept turning his eye to a world that he knew had horror in it. Mm-hmm. He always found there was more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.